Good evening everybody and welcome to Let's Talk Assassin's Creed, your number one podcast for all things Assassin's Creed. In today's episode, I want to take a look at how the ever-evolving gaming industry can be affecting the evolution of Assassin's Creed. We're going to be taking a look at how Assassin's Creed has evolved from 2007 up to Valhalla and the possible future, and also the impact the gaming industry is slowly making on Assassin's Creed. We are joined by three amazing people. I Craig from the a moderator of the Sisterhood server, James, a moderator from the Assassin's Creed Odyssey server, and if we're talking about the gaming industry, we'll need someone who actually knows about the gaming industry. So we're joined by Memo, who works with Xbox. Are you all ready for this? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello everyone. It's all voices now, see, we've got yeah. everyone here. Yeah. Let's go. Let's go. So, first point is really a simple point. Does everybody think that the gaming industry has changed Assassin's Creed directly, uh, drastically? Um, based on the influences, uh, definitely. I would say it was. I it would start with the trend of the. Well, actually, Assassin's Creed used to pioneer in that trend, like you know, being in an open world cities then exploring and doing side quests. Like ever since Assassin's Creed 1, it used to be that world where Prince of Persia evolved into this open world parkour game. And that opened up many developers to actually do the same in their games. And what actually changed that trend, like that appeal to everybody was the Witcher 3 formula or a generic RPG now we call these days. I mean, we find that in almost every other formula these days. Um, so I feel that is what is like, we see that trend changing now and then. And especially with the live service games that is brought out by EA with FIFA, uh, Fortnite, Destiny 2. And we see that even Ubisoft is trying to adapt to that change as well to get more money out of us to provide, to go for that game as a service. Um, you went straight in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, I mean, right. Because it is, uh, it, like if you see how the industry has changed so far before it used to be like very game centric, right? Like you had levels and stuff, gameplays, but now it's more of like game as a service. You are, you are playing the game for a type of a service. And you still pay more for more content. And that's unfortunately the future for bigger industries like AAA titles. Small industries are yet to maintain that. So we don't see much change in the small industries, but in the big industries, definitely. I guess games are following, well, they're following music. You know, when Apple made music available, you know, a la carte, buy a single song for 99 cents. What was that, 20 years ago? Um, you know, Microsoft used to buy Office every three or four years at £200 a copy. Now you rent it at £5 a month or £10 a month. Um, other, you know, many products are online. Your, your accounting software, your CRM software, and uh, yeah, games have followed the same thing. We don't want you to buy a game at £60 every two years. We want you to rent the game at £5 a month or something like that. Yeah, monetization metrics is absolutely a measurement that games are leaning on quite heavily, uh, especially recently. We have dashboards and data points for pretty much every, everything, telemetry events that monitor you know, what events are happening in the game and how players are using them. Um, and those data points 
end up driving a lot of core business decisions. And sometimes that data can become a point of dilution. So I guess what that means is that some people who have decision-making power don't necessarily spend much time with the game itself and may not have a real idea and feel for what the game actually plays like and actually looks like. And when you don't have that hands-on experience and you're relying on those kind of abstract data points and bullet points, you can run the risk of creating a product for the sake of it and not necessarily for the fun of it. You know, if, you don't, if you're not continuing this mantra of being player-focused, if you're not keeping that at your core priorities when you're developing the title throughout the entire life cycle of production, then you, know, you, can, you can drive a rift between the developers and the players, and you can end up creating something that doesn't necessarily have the life that maybe it once did. So um, I know at least on my team, um, I work for Minecraft at Xbox, and we have a very deep and direct relationship with content creators and players. Um, we work with them literally every week. Um, and that core relationship that we have, that touchstone of constant interaction with the people who are using our games and who are creating content for our games, is one of the reasons that it's still been actively maintained for 10 years and, and longer. And, you know, when, when we get too, too focused on that data, um, I do think there is a bit of a risk that we focus on, well, we could get this much money if we started punching out this kind of monetization because the data's there and the data shows that the players will pay it. Um, but if we can't just run based on based on money and based on data, or we could potentially end up shooting ourselves in the foot. Yes, I point. And I guess you can't, you can't, you may not be able to answer this, but I wonder if there's a tension between seeing a change that you could make that would make you lots of money in the short term, but damage the brand, damage player engagement in the long term. And there must be a tension there between those two desires. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm confident that that's a decision that, that leadership teams are making constantly of, well, we could make this big change and we think it'll make us a lot of money, but what if, you know, the players overall give us a lot of grief for it? And in many cases, they would probably be correct to give a lot of grief for it. Um, especially with the, the free-to-play systems that we have with the influx of, of mobile games. Obviously, that took the free-to-play market and monetization market off on, on a rocket. Um, and that completely changed the way a lot of people think about how we can actually gain money for the products that we released for games. So um, there definitely has to be some sort of happy marriage that's introduced. Um, and those are, those are critical conversations, I think, that, that a lot of leadership teams and designers need to have. So it seems like Assassin's Creed is trying to play catch up with an ever changing industry. And this, as you said, could end up shooting you in the foot when you're trying to catch certain waves of, as in the game industry, the known whales who love to spend cash after cash. If you start chasing them, you could push your hardcore fans away. But then again, if you start chasing your hardcore fans and giving them what they want, you can have the other side of the coin where an influx of new players is put off because it's a world that's just ever evolving to suit the current fan base and not a new fan base. So it seems like over 14 years of development, Assassin's Creed has yet to find the happy medium between chasing new players and engaging older players. Yeah, it's fair because we see that trend happening ever since with Assassin's Creed 2. Uh, because even now you get some fans saying that there is no true sequel to Assassin's Creed 1, which has been like 14 years. And so, yeah, there have been people who have uh, argued the fact that 
um, Assassin's Creed did not have a true sequel and pushing forward, we see that trend changing too. Like with Assassin's Creed 2, we saw the first start of the monetization system because we didn't have currency in the game in Assassin's Creed 1. And then it pushed on with Assassin's Creed 2. And we see that evolve through through the years with um, gear systems, uh, weapons, abilities with Odyssey, um, and with Origins, of course. Um, We see that evolve towards that RPG formula and that evolution, but there is that stopping point or maybe that over-evolvingness of that, I can't bring that exact term, but maybe that there is that tipping point where it should not cross over that it changes identity too much. So to quote Batman, it would be like, not Batman. It would who was it? Oh, it was Harvey Dent from Batman series. He was like, "Do you die a hero or live long yourself? Uh, live long, live long enough to see yourself become a villain." So that is what I see over here, and maybe that's what's also happening with the industry as well. Yeah, I guess on on that point, like game development is all about innovation. Like games are a way to tell a story and to do it in an interactive medium that lets players get immersed in a way you can't necessarily do with books and movies and TV shows. You have an element of control as a player. But from a game development perspective, games are also a way to experiment. So when you discover new technology and things like game engine updates or hardware, or discover new ways for players to engage through UI and complex code, we can then tap into the potential for a more fun and awesome overall experience. Um, like each each new Assassin's Creed title does something different. Like if you go from Valhalla and Eivor's experience all the way back to the AC1 Altair experience, you can see common threads in the overall lore and story, but the way you play the game is very different. Like you started kind of like what uh, you guys were talking about earlier, you start with relatively straightforward gameplay mechanics of parkour and free running, Um, pretty basic proactive and reactive combat and the viewpoint system. And then that's simply been edited and added to over the past several years. So with Ezio's games, they added things like the bombs and the new kinds of hidden blades. AC3 had the enhanced free running system and weather simulations. I genuinely got excited. You could open a door without a loading screen. That was pretty cool. Um, Black Flag, of course, had the uh, incredibly innovative and fun naval combat system and then started doing a little bit of the weapon customization. Unity had multiplayer and skill trees uh, and additional player customization. Syndicate's parkour system was enhanced even further. I still think the rope launcher that they introduced from that introduced some of the best parkour in the entire franchise. Um, And then Origins, of course, that kind of marked a pretty big departure from some other previous games. It had a huge overhaul in combat and skill trees, absolutely massive open world with a feathered friend to help you view it from above because it was just that big. Um, And then Odyssey broke it even further by introducing those RPG mechanics where you had dialogue choices, you could pursue romances, you had branching quests and multiple endings so you could actually alter the way the game was played for you. And then, of course, with Valhalla, we have the settlement system. You can actually dual wield with shields now. You have mini games like Orlog, fishing, and flighting. And all of those points in that long but non-exhaustive list are related to the way the gaming industry has expanded and grown over time because games can do more than they ever could before. And more people are involved in engaging with games than ever before. So we've also created more potential. Um, I think the shift to an RPG style was a big one for the series. And I'm confident it was because of trends that Ubisoft recognized from other successful franchises like The Witcher and Mass Effect. Because 
players like to feel like they have a say and like the game is truly their own and RPGs are arguably the best way to kind of create that level of immersion. So I think change is inevitable with an iterative series like Assassin's Creed. And while I think some of those can be received as good or bad for completely valid reasons, it's ultimately a good thing that I think Ubisoft is receptive to exploring those kinds of changes and that players continue to engage with and provide that feedback on those changes. I think it's just a matter of finding that happy marriage between tradition and innovation. James, do you want to say anything? Well, I was, I, I, uh, I was, I had a question to pose earlier, and I was listening to Memo's um, summary of the series, and I've kind of forgotten my question because I was so, I was concentrating so hard and listening so eagerly. What was I going to ask? Oh, ah, I'm so sorry. That was it. No, it's fine. It's fine. That was it. I was going to ask you because you three are the sort of the experienced AC pros uh, on the show. So, what was the first AC game that had an online store where you could buy? weapons or outfits or whatever is it as far back as brotherhood or revelations or was it newer than that Uh, no i i think what he mentioned was with the ubisoft reward system it started with i think was ac2 where you had the uplay points ac1 didn't have uplay points at the time um ac2 started out with the uplay points it did have something but it didn't have like a very on service or like online store per se. Brotherhood also I don't remember it being there. I think it was from AC three onwards you started having like different like you have like you yes. Ubisoft based. Yes. You could get different outfits and stuff, yeah. wouldn't you? Yeah. 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 I was just I was just thinking it through because I've I've played well in the last eight months I've been sprinting through the series. Um and and when Memo was was summarizing sort of the different the variety, um, you know, I'll be honest, I appreciate we're talking, we, you know, E-Craig sort of kicked off with, with talking about microtransactions, but in terms of variety and trying out different combat styles, parkour styles, exploration styles, I've enjoyed all of them. I said this to you the other day when we were talking, E-Craig, I know it's, yeah. I know it's a politician's answer, but I enjoyed AC1. I didn't particularly enjoy the me- melee combat in the early games, but that's because I can never get the target lock on to work, but... I enjoyed all of the games. And I think if there had been 12 or 13 games, whatever the... Yeah, if it was the same, yeah. If it, it was all like yeah. AC2 or AC1, it's just a different city and a different set of nine targets, no yeah. one would buy the game. Exactly. There has to be... The, I, I guess that's the tension in the middle of it, isn't it? There has to be some core... Um, tropes is the wrong word. What's the right word? Core sort of cultural points or gameplay points, but then lots of experimentation, flexibility... Uh, around those i think it's mainly to do with the size of the ac games as well like for example uh let's take with the like we have seen a recently a chart with the completion times of uh previous ac games and then the latest ones and in the latest ones it has drastically increased to 130 yards so by this i think what i feel is that by that one game that these players play with uh say for example origins or odyssey or Valhalla, for that fact, they're crossing like 100 hours, which is equivalent to what we play for at least for AC games in the past, and probably that must have also caused the fatigue in them and why they wanted an innovation or a departure from it. A big thing to remember with games that are 
innovating and changing things is that game development has what we call a retrospective process, which I imagine is pretty common outside of game development as well, where people kind of come together in a room and say, hey, we just released something, whether that was the full game, whether that was just a feature or an update. And we sit down and kind of talk about, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, and what can we do in the future to either prevent some of those problems or make things better. And I think with a long-standing franchise like this one, they can kind of afford to have those higher level retrospectives of saying, you know, what went well with Origins? What did fans really like? What what went well for the development? What were things that, that we had fun developing, the things that we successfully created during that time? And how can we expand on that moving forward? So with each new title, it's not just about what the fans enjoyed. It's about like an actual conversation of what, like on paper documenting, what were the things that actually went well during this process and what can we do moving forward? So I, I imagine a lot of that uh, will factor into each subsequent title in terms of new tools, new UI, um, different ways they shape the story. Obviously the story has ebbed and flowed in terms of some of its roots regarding the ones that came before and um, how a lot of that has been approached. Um, and you'll notice that there was a lot of reception around how they kind of changed that approach with Valhalla because they hadn't delved into that quite as much. And I'm confident that that particular storytelling decision was made because there was a discussion with Darby and with other folks on the team saying, is that something we want to get back into? Is that something that, based on our previous notes, would be worth reiterating on and doubling down on? So retrospectives are a huge part of, of how games are managed and a very, very valuable part because it's pinpointing the things that may not have been as great as they could have been. On about the ref retrospectives, Darby did reply to me on a Twitter when I asked about bringing back sages that he wanted to focus on older stuff and bring them back to life, then actually introduce new things, which then actually ties in with another point I was going to raise is technical hardware. It's not just game development that's evolving. It's not just live services, how much money you can get out of it. It's also technical development from dev kits, from consoles, from PC. That must be having some effect because when you look at Unity, and it's a great example, the hardware for the PS4 was pushed to the limits to create 10,000 unique NPCs, all with their own line of code, all interactable, the non-cardboard cutout. Which then means as the series gets longer and consoles get stronger and they get more powerful, you can't rely on old tropes. You can't have a simplistic parkour because the power of that much, you'll have to make a better free running system. But as shown in Unity, the free running was so fluid, so great for the power of PS4, they may not have been able to redo that with Origins and later games. Because they're putting more power into the world, more power into the story, into the combat. So as they get bigger, are we going to start losing certain tropes because they don't have enough power to make them smoother? Or there's too much power focused on bigger worlds, more details, making worlds feel more lived in than just what you can do in the worlds? Hardware yeah, technology is definitely going to have an impact on some of that for sure. Like we have ray tracing, which is obviously adding a huge element of immersion where you can actually see reflections in the water and windows. Um, with 
the SSDs that are now shipped on console kits, we have the ability to load things in crazy fast times, like loading screens. We're going to have to address loading screens differently because with, with older games, like if you boot up the older Assassin's Creed, if you boot up Skyrim, if you boot up um, a bunch of things that came out on like the 360 PS3, PS2 era, um, the loading screens basically don't exist. You boot up the game and in two seconds you're, you're in, that's it. Um, and so like those kinds of things, like loading screens, considerations and things like that, those will have to be reconsidered with the new technology for how we want to address those kinds of things. Like obviously with, with each different phase of technology, we're going to get to a point where games are so big and complex and, and, uh, elaborate that the loading screens will suddenly start to matter again and the technology will have to play catch up. But that's always going to be a thing that's happening with each new iteration of tech as we're going to be playing catch up. Right. Speaking of uh, tech, I remember the uh, GDC conference for Unity's The Thousand Unican PCs. And it was using that very same formula they formulated with the AI of the NPCs loading in and loading out, uh, which was evident in Origins. We see that evolution going on, which is a very good evolution. So yeah, I'm, I'm actually excited to see how the series would evolve. But again, I wonder at what point would that innovation would lead to a stale, a stale state in a way. A stale state is um, a good point. Sorry to jump in before you, James. Um, if you look at all the articles for Syndicate, um, a lot of them claim that Syndicate is just stale because it's not innovative. It's the same parkour. It's the same story formula. It's the same traversal sort of style, just a bit more coat, a bit more detail. It's nothing innovative. So we already know that by Syndicate, the industry was calling the games stale, even though the parkour, as Memo brought up with the rope launcher, was fun. Even though the combat was fun and the story is great, there wasn't enough innovative, innovation with it that it became stale. So we're already starting to see that at one point in the franchise, it was becoming stale. Do you think, strange. though, just, just on that point of Syndicate, I'm personally just going to say I love Syndicate. I think it's Same. Um, do you sus- I, I, I wonder if, because it was only released a year after Unity, I wonder if Syndicate maybe started as a more ambitious title and they had to rein in some of the ideas, either because they were spending their resources working on Unity's bugs or they realised they were never going to make some of Unity's systems perfect of course they released many patches to improve them after release and they decided to sort of go for a safer release in terms of um innovation because they innovated a lot with unity and it didn't work out very well at least uh, early on and i wanted to to address another point that you made declan a, a moment or two ago about the size of the world and the complexity of the world so i mean i'm currently i'm what about six hours into unity and i'm exploring paris and having a great time and the level of detail in each building, in each shop, when you watch the NPCs walking their loops is stunning. The parkour is amazing. And I wonder if there's simply a um, an issue of scale. Could you build Egypt or Greece or uh, Middle Age England with that level of um, interaction, NPC data, uh, detail? And then you've got the underlying... Um, what do you call it, Craig? Is it the nodes that are used to drive the parkour um, in Unity? There's probably an issue right. of overall scale. You can have a very large map that, that takes up 50 gigabytes or 100 gigabytes of visual assets, 
but you, if you then wanted to include all of the detail of NPCs and very detailed shops and houses you can run through windows and, and all the rest of it, you'd probably be adding so much to the capacity, to the, the total storage size that it becomes unwieldy. Even if the storage is fast, there's still a finite amount of storage that you have to play with. And for me, that would probably come down to the central point. Do you want a, a smaller but more detailed world that you explore the story or do you want a large open world where you explore the story or can you do both can you sort of tick tock between them where you have well, a, a more open game where you have a bit less detail and then you have a more focused game on one city or a couple of cities uh i'm more of a deus ex uh, fan so i would prefer a small detail world so which is why mass effect has always been like a huge hit for me because there are these small centralized worlds where there's so much detail in tiny, tiny areas where you could find a lot of things that wouldn't have happened on your normal first run. But if it's something like a huge open world, say, it, details tend to miss out a lot. And that can be lost in translation depending on how much the devs... Like, you know, devs love to live, uh, leave little Easter eggs and stuff. Like, for example, recently, right now, today in Unity, we just found out that devs left some um, unused code, uh, which was supposed to be a part of a puzzle, but they left it out because they didn't, they scratched out the project. And it's still there in the game, but we found it out and it was great. I'm so glad someone else mentioned Mass Effect before I did, because that's the <laughs> stereotype, is that I'm the Mass Effect person. Yes. Um, I love it. <laughs> it's known. It is known. Um, I literally have a, car, a Commander Shepard cardboard cutout out in another room, and I have a whole I have a helmet. Yeah, anyway. Uh, I digress. Can't um, say I'm jealous or not, but <laughs> yeah. I still it's, haven't played Mass Effect, so. Same, same. I won't judge you for not having played it, because it is an investment but I do recommend playing it. And then, to, I mean, just doubling down on your point to kind of keep things on topic, like I, I think one of the reasons that games like Mass Effect is successful is like you've said, because it's a condensed level of, of focus. Like there's a lot of information, there's a lot of lore, there's a lot going on, but it doesn't feel overwhelming because it's not on the, at that to that scale of the massive maps that you see in things like Assassin's Creed Origins and Odyssey and Valhalla. The maps are very small consider uh, comparatively but because there's so much ambient dialogue with the npcs because and that dialogue it's not just you know throwaway like some guy saying hey did you go to the your how's the weather like it's it's the dialogue is immersive it's them having genuine conversations as if you were actually passing someone in the street and then you feeling like you're there you're actually on ilium you're on omega you're on those planets um, and you're with these different people these different alien races and so kind of like what I said before, immersion is really one of the biggest reasons that people find fulfillment in things like video games. And when you can kind of control it in that element without creating this massive map that, that people feel like they're compelled to explore, especially for completionists like me, um, they can focus more on that story, on those characters than on going to checkpoints or on fulfilling different areas of a map to make sure that they've seen everything. So there's pros and cons between both of those uh, types of gameplay approaches for sure. Preach, preach. <laughs> I, as I've mentioned a few times, I think this is where Assassin's Creed has fig figuratively shot itself in the foot. Building on a franchise where you explore history and you do all this, and then you have the one-to-one -one scale cities in some games. 
but then you get um black flag which is most of the caribbean you then get um Lund- all of london which is, again is one one city and then you get origins which is all of egypt as darby politely put out when he was talking about valhalla and shrink of valhalla you would have got a fishbowl effect standing on top of Jorvik and seeing london is not immersive that's not how a game map would be so in my opinion assassin's creed has shot itself in the foot trying to be this history game because you can't shrink history avor's story couldn't have been told in very smaller tighter unity maps like a one-to-one so it has to be this big you travel from Jorvik to london in a more immersive realistic way on horseback not just as soon as you leave Jorvik two steps down the road you're in london that's not very immersive or indulgent it's like playing black flag and as soon as you leave havana you can sail for two minutes down the ocean and you're in the great iguana that's not immersive so i do believe that assassin's creed just, just needs to find a way of giving us history but without restricting the immersion of being in that history and i think this is where smaller and bigger maps are going to be at war with each other for the future in my opinion I think I think there's another way that if if and of course it's easy for me to say this sitting at my desk um, <laughs> and I don't I don't develop games I don't write code but I feel like there is a there is a middle way and I know compromise usually means that no one ends up happy but hear me out um, I feel there is a middle way that, that they could take which is if you follow the format of Origins Odyssey Valhalla you've had the big open world you've had lots to do lots to see beautiful locations and interesting historical periods and so on. But I feel like the DLCs, although some have been fun and some have expanded the lore and some have been not so good, um, DLCs are underused. And I wonder if you were you could use those as a way of addressing both. So you have your main game, that's your big open world, but then you have your DLC that is much more focused on stories about the characters in a city thinking of the early games. Maybe you have a new list of targets, but you never leave London, for example. So Eivor spends her time within the walled city, you know, and you're bringing back those kind of older, very constrained, very detailed stories. Um, But you're not throwing away the big open worlds and the Viking sort of fantasies that that some players want. So it's funny that you mentioned that because that's kind of the approach that Dragon Age 2 took from Bioware, where... There was a central city, Kirkwall, that your character and your companions navigated through. And that core city, Kirkwall, was where you spent a vast majority of your time throughout the game. That was your hub. That was where you fought a lot of your battles. That's where a lot of the cutscenes happened. That's where the story was developed. And you'd go on little side quests that would take you out of it. Um, But for the most part, you were just spending your time in that central city. Um, And while there were many things that didn't go great with Dragon Age 2 for a variety of reasons, um, one of the things that it did well was, just like you said, the benefit of having that central location met, met, made you feel rooted. It meant you felt like like Kirkwall mattered, like Kirkwall was actually itself one of the characters of the game and a thing that, that mattered. So that by the time you finish playing the game after I don't know how many hours it would take to finish Dragon Age 2, it's been a while, um, you feel like you as a player actually had an impact on the city. And you felt like the changes that you made for your own story also affected the environment that you're in. And it's a lot harder 
to have that kind of relationship, that kind of cohabitation with the setting, if you're strewn across a very, very wide map that doesn't necessarily have as much meaning attached to it. Yeah, I was going to uh, raise a similar point because um, I try to entertain with my idea of like a game design perspective where um, James, when you brought out with the idea of that, like, let's have open worlds and then why not bring in DLCs? The thing is, then the base game itself would utterly fail in a way. Like, like we can keep areas reserved for DLCs and stuff. But if it's left barren and in the base game, like many people wouldn't buy the DLCs unless if they're interested in the game itself. So this comes from, a, say, from a new person's perspective, for example. And they're going to buy a $60 game, play through the entire thing. And uh, if they feel like the world is not as interesting and stuff, then they wouldn't be compelled to buy the DLC just because it only covers that particular area. Um, but yeah, that is where I find that a bit lacking, but it could be worked on. DLCs are quite underrated, for example. Um, like they give out like these tiny, tiny hidden arcs that we really want to know about the character. Um, I wish it like, it would have gone the CDPR route where it is free, like for Witcher, um, they went like the free route where they made like a almost equally larger map. And they brought in more content for Geralt and his future in living in that series. So I really wish Assassin's Creed went with that route as well. But with the open world system, I f like the open world like as big as Odyssey Valhalla, I feel that it would hit uh, the fishbowl effect. So I think the other thing, and I've just come to think of it off the top of my head about world size is. A problem that I've faced in every Assassin's Creed game, except the new ones, is I do like to do completion runs if I really want to, but I find with the smaller maps of AC1 and Unity, all that stuff crammed into it, like all the 120 flags in AC1, is just too much to do in such a small space. You know, it becomes monotonous because they're not putting in open spaces, whereas Valhalla and Origins Bigger World, you can find these side stuff quite easily. You know, there's they're gonna be a big enough room to see them, but with AC1 with how small Masayev is compared to um later games, some of the flags are hidden in like really tight knit spots are just boring to find. There's no real excitement to the exploration. I know I'm gonna get shot for saying that, but I don't feel as much exploration to run across 20 rooftops to jump to a very small corner that I'll never look at again just for a flag where oh, unity yeah, I can yeah, go to a field. I understand what you're feeling, but the thing is this is a creative choice that was done by the devs there. Um, because if we know for most of the Ubisoft games, they were known to be the collectible games. I'm putting that in air quotes. Um, because you, you play any Ubisoft game, there is not even one of the games that I know so far that didn't have a collectible. And that is like a trademark with Ubisoft. Um, and what I meant by smaller, denser worlds, I meant something like Mass Effect. And Mass Effect, I think, did this really, really well, where collectibles was not the focus. It was mainly how you interact with the environment, how you learn from the environment, and that enhances their, your experience of the story, of the narrative, everything. 
And I hope that Assassin's Creed would have brought in more detailed uh, fishbowl effects sort of thing. That is what I meant by it. Um, you spruce up the fishbowl, it'll be good for us. We'll focus more on that rather than the multitude of trees that we see or the multitude of flowers that we will see in one area to the other. So that is what I meant by that. Be honest, I and I don't really... think... Oh, go ahead. Uh, sorry, I was going to say, I think I really need to go play a Mass Effect soon. <laughs> I'm thinking the same. I'm thinking I, the same. I, think I, I am so... very biased. So... Yeah. <laughs> I think I so... No, this was my first time playing Mass Effect, so that is why I enjoyed it thoroughly. So um, do give it a try. I'm, gi- I'm giving this from a freshers' perspective. And this is my... I'm going through my second run of Mass Effect, so yes. And nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've played it like eight times or something. So if you need pointers or whatever, just come to me and I can help you out. But um, but as far as what you said before about just the collectible style that Ubisoft has, because you're right, it's a thing. Like Watch Dogs has it as well. And Watch Dogs is also one of their biggest flagship um, franchises at the moment outside of Assassin's Creed. And um, I mean, I think the point with these kinds of collectibles is there has to be purpose for them, for it to feel meaningful. Same thing with side quests, really. Um, outside of the main campaign like uh we'll throw we'll throw skyrim out as an example while i while i noodle on things for assassin's creed where Sk- the reason skyrim is so popular is because all of those side quests the fact that it that it feels like an evergreen title that it feels like there's always something to do is because all of those little radiant side quests feel like they matter well maybe not all of them <laughs> but but a handful of them feel like they matter they feel like if you go and do them you know you're helping a civilian or um you know you're you're saving a town from a dragon raid or something like that like it's not just doing something for the sake of doing it and with with assassin's creed some of the side quests and checkpoints are kind of a hit or miss some of them are great and some of them are not and the ones that at least from my purview tend to be great are the ones that feel like they matter like we want to go visit Stonehenge because it's Stonehenge. Everybody wants to go visit that kind of really historic central location. I was really excited to find that. Um, you want to go to those historical places and see what Ubisoft believed they looked like and be able to interact with it in some way. Or if there's some sort of side quest, you want it to be something where it's more than just, oh, yeah, I got another weapon or, hey, I got some more XP. You want it to be something where it's like, oh, hey, that was a really touching story with that character. I'm glad I got the experience to, to go meet them and play with them or... Um, you know, if I'm going to have to grind to get this particular weapon, make it a challenge, make it something that I haven't done before in the game, make it something that feels unique. And so it's just, they need to, to kind of double down on finding out what the happy medium is so that it feels like there's less filler content to just fill out that massive map, because sometimes it does feel that way. Before I let I Craig talk, I will admit, I kind of hands down think Valhalla has done it the best with having none of the side content marked with particular icons it's just gold and blue and white i do feel like going to them is more meaningful than anything so chasing after a gold icon um for a weapon that i didn't know was there it really felt more meaningful exploring the map to this gold icon to find a bandit cam to then find a new piece of gear yeah i may never use the piece of gear but it was just the journey that i've hunted it down i've searched for it for myself it felt meaningful because i didn't know what was there and i think that has been the best part of exploration when you know something's there it's a bit i don't really want to go there it's going to be another quest but when you don't know what's there it's kind of a bit more let's find out and see what's on the horizon yeah i would agree with that the the little the glowing 
bluish whitish icons in particular those were kind of those more ambient ones where you could interact with npcs every time i'd boot up the game and start playing i'd be like oh i missed one well i should probably go over there and check it out and see what's going on because i've been rewarded in the past because most of them had felt meaningful kind of like you said like they felt unique they felt like something that i didn't regret pursuing you know with with some of the ones where it was just go here pick this thing it's like yeah whatever like dragon age inquisition it's like cool i picked another herb great like yeah i might build a potion with it later most likely i'm never going to do anything with it um but yeah valhalla actually did in many ways find a good medium for that where some of it was kind of eh, whatever but most of the time markers on the map weren't too dense there weren't like too many of the markers to a certain degree um and they felt like something that i actually wanted to check out Right. Uh, speaking of rewards, I again want to bring Mass Effect, but this time it's Assassin's Creed. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I fell in love with the series, man. So yeah, it's a very good game. Um, so is, is the podcast going to take a, a new tangent? Are we? Is this going to be Declan's Mass Effect <laughs> podcast from now? I think it might be. Be careful. Might. Be careful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm. I'm. I'm turning. I think I'm slightly biased to Mass Effect nowadays. I think. Um, but the thing with Assassin's Creed, it did have very good moments too. Like for example, in AC2, the feather collection didn't make me feel as tedious as before because towards the end, I got this very wonderful interaction with Maria, with Ezio's mother. Uh, because if, if uh, those who follow the story, you remember that when Ezio started out in his journey away from um, his hometown, um, his mother was in, still in the state of shock, uh, was not able to interact with anybody and everything else. And she would constantly look at the feathers. So you bringing that feather back into uh, Monteregioni and delivering that feathers is that one step forward for that mother to recover from that shock. And that actually hit me the most in a way. And I hope that games do deliver, uh, like the future game at least, would deliver some meaningful content in that manner. Um, that's what I expected. And Valhalla did deliver that with the blue. Uh, they were fetch, some of them were fetch quests, but they were like fun fetch quests. One of my favorite interaction was the man with the axe on his head. Yeah, I <laughs> laughed. That was hilarious. That was early on in Grand Bridge Show, wasn't it? That yeah, was brilliant. Yeah, that was hilarious. And, and the walloper. Yeah. <laughs> and we had Winnie the Pooh too. And it was amazing. Like all these. Oh, well, that's movies. right. Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> yeah. These yeah. tiny interactions are what we want for. Like, I, obviously, it was still a checklist for me because I'm a completionist. I see like there is a checklist, like these are the amount of things I can do in the particular map. I wish that checklist was not there. I would have enjoyed Valhalla more in a way because then I would have that sense like, hey, there is something on the horizon rather than something that I, that I know it actually exists in the particular map. Um, before I let James talk, I'm going to make a confession that I actually didn't know there was a reason to collect feathers in AC2. After I saw how much I needed to collect, I got so bored of collecting well, them. I just you're not the them. only one. I have never collected all of the flags and the feathers from nope. the first couple Same. of games. I I like got like a third of the way through, and then I when I wasn't receiving immediate uh, satisfaction, I guess, or an immediate reward, I was like, yeah, I'm out. I'm done. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Because the thing is, like. It went tedious later on, and I think AC2 was one of the first games that kept hidden chests for hidden memories and stuff. So um, that was great. Like they kept like hidden rooms in particular replayable missions, which is amazing. Uh, so whatever. I, I, 
Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say the only thing that I found was kind of ironic was um, one of the kind of similar-ish collection bits from Valhalla was the stacking stones and those little skill checks. And I thought those were going to be like, yeah, I'm never going to do those. That seems just gimmicky. And I've done all but one of them. And because it actually felt satisfying to get them stacked correctly because of the physics that the game was using. Oh, um, yeah. Granted, the one that I haven't done, I basically rage quit because I was getting so frustrated. Oh, that is I couldn't get it stacked I, I correctly. I can guess which one that is. That is Yurvikshire. I'm betting Probably. on that. Probably. Oh, it's really? been a few months since I booted it up. playing the game. But yeah, it was the hardest. was the hardest ever. Like, whatever I tried, it wouldn't stack up. Yeah, and... I'm, I'm at the point where it's like, can I just go to YouTube and cheat and see how someone else did this? Because I just want to get it done and say that I did it. And part of the reason, too, is to your point about um, how Assassin's Creed builds in this little moment when you've completed all those checkpoints. Like, you get that small little moment with young Avorn Sigurd if you complete all the stacking stones. It's like, I want that moment. I don't want to have to look it up on YouTube to get that moment. I want to earn that moment. Um so there is that level of compulsion for rewarding you for completing those kinds of things. It's just you have to figure out the the level of at what point is it not worth a churn anymore. And I think we've ignored James long enough, darling James. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll I'll make a few points. So uh, first of all, Declan, you didn't collect all the feathers in AC two. Obviously, we are very disappointed in you. But I have good news. If you play Brotherhood, Maria, Mama Maria, she's fine. She has recovered. She talks. She works. Yeah, yeah she the, does. The Rose but... and Fury. So do you know what? Don't worry about it. You're all right. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask, uh, uh, again, I'm going to ask another history question. And this is this is for Memo as our as our uh, honourable representative for uh, for the Mass Effect trilogy. So the Mass Effect, Mass Effect 3 is some years old, I think. And I will say, first of all, I haven't played it, but I do have the Legendary Edition sitting in my uh, Steam library. So it's, it's ready to be played. Please in the play. Please play. <laughs> I will. I will. But what I'm, what I'm wondering is, and I, this is sort of a point that I heard on the Hookblade uh, podcast on their episode that they released um, last week. And they made a point which was kind of along the lines of, because... Uh, Assassin's Creed is it's a conveyor belt of continuous releases, sometimes annually, sometimes every two years. I mean, it's it's been averaging about every 18 months, hasn't it, uh, recently? Um, with games like Mass Effect, and I forget the one that Icrate mentioned earlier, but they haven't been released in a long time, but the, they've that's allowed time for the community to fully explore them and start and to appreciate them and love them and work out their mechanics and create community content that assists new players. Whereas with Assassin's Creed, you're always, and maybe this is to connect back to the industry discussion that we were, we were going to have at the start. Um, maybe because it's become more efficient or faster to develop games because there's more people or more automated tooling, they can release a game every two years with a huge open world. Whether they should or not is another question. But I wonder actually if that very fast release cycle does affect the ability for these games to sink into the long-term consciousness in the way that, for example, the Mass Effect trilogy has. And I wonder what you will think about that. I think oh, yeah. I've mentioned this before. It's it's with the size of the games, right? Like, for example, let's take with Origins, for example. I don't think you can appreciate every tiny detail of that game, even like in two or three years, because that's the amount of time I've spent on that game. And you take a game like Mass Effect, and with Mass Effect, I think you can finish the entire game on a completionist run within 60 hours. All three games. And 
that is all something. three games in yeah. 60 hours yeah that would be and almost speed run level but it can be done yes I mean, yeah, it's taken I've me 180 that. hours to do one run of Valhalla, including Wrath yeah. of the Druid. So those numbers are uh, <laughs> right. they seem almost too short, but it sounds yeah. interesting. But that's the thing. So when it's that short, with the yearly, uh, yearly release cycles, fans have that time to appreciate what was there already. Now take, for example, with Valhalla or say Unity, for example. Unity was one of the larger games during that time. And that's when the fan felt the fatigue because they didn't yet explore the full nature of Unity at the time. And by the time they did, a new game was already out with almost a similar mechanics. So obviously fans didn't have that appreciation for the mechanics that was there in place in a way because they have already used it. They have already are sort of like trying to figure it out. And we see that with happening with Valhalla. Uh, like it was like what? Not even two years. Within two years, I guess, the release cycle. So yeah. yeah, it was two years, two years and a month or yeah, back because um, Odyssey was released the first week of um, October. So, right, yeah, two years, it two is, years and a month. Yeah, it is only until today that we come to know about like tiny, tiny details like chess and something, something as ignorant as chess are coming out now. And given with the time, I hope that it would be better for the RPG series. But I think it's because of that yearly release cycle that stress. For the industry to push out like hey you gotta put like you know a good game out there maybe that's what's happening that's also that's affecting the fans as well that fatigue is getting to them there the issue with with the aggressive development cycle um and i'm not going to speak as if i'm an expert of all things game industry just because i'm in it because i 100 am not and i don't think any single person in the game development industry is an expert that's just how it works um but i think there's a danger of getting too aggressive with these release cycles, which is why I'm glad that Ubisoft kind of stepped back and was like, hey, maybe we shouldn't ship every year or two. Um, because I think with the scope of games that are just this massive in terms of ambition, in terms of code, in terms of all of the different things that you can do, um, I think they just need more time to bake for, for both reasons, for the amount of energy and work that's required to develop the game and also to make sure that it can, to your point, kind of settle with crowds and give people time to appreciate them and replay them. Because replayability is also going to be a pretty key factor in a lot of these products. Like for a lot of people, um, you know, when they revamped in, uh, the, the Ezio trilogy and they re-released it, people were like, yeah, this is worth going back to. This is worth replaying again. And I don't know that the same energy is given to some of the more recent Assassin's Creed releases. Like, I don't know that a lot of those more recent games are things that people are flocking to replay. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm making generalizations. I'm not saying no one replaced them. Obviously, you guys are playing Unity right now, so it's not like no one replays them. I still first time, them, but, first time. <laughs> um, and that's and that's good too. Like, there's value in playing in playing games that have been released a long time ago. I played Knights of the Old Republic for the first time two or three years ago. That game oh, wow. is very old. It is yeah. not like aged well. The graphics and the gameplay are very archaic compared to the things that we had today. But the reason why a game like that is still replayable is because the game was made so well in terms of its tight storyline, and because even though the gameplay is visually very very old, it's still crisp. It still works. It's still satisfying to be able to whip out a lightsaber and attack people with it. Like that's still a fun thing to do in spite of some of its flaws. So I think in my opinion, I hope that games take more time to develop them, take more time to make sure that it ships at quality, that it actually ships to 
to align with the original vision that the game was trying to create and trying to produce. Um, and I think the main drawback with that, of course, is that a lot of us currently, myself included, are impatient. <laughs> we don't like waiting years and years for new games to come out. People have been complaining about uh, Bethesda's Starfield and being like, when are we going to get an update? When are we going to actually be able to play this game in space, right? Um, and it's because we build so much hype, we build so much noise about these kinds of games, and because many of them are something that we can finish in a relatively short amount of time, that we want something to kind of be in those ebb and flow. We want to be able to have a constant flow of titles that we can play throughout the year so that we're not twiddling our thumbs and necessarily being forced to replay old things that we're not excited about. But personally, I still think, like, we can be patient. <laughs> we can always afford to be patient if it means that the product we get after a little bit more time is tighter, is more fun, is more unique, is more aligned with with the expectations that are being set. Yep, definitely agree with that. I agree. And so before we move on to the last point, I do want to add that I'm currently replaying AC1 and I'm loving it because it's AC1. But I'm finding now that Valhalla is having year two content, I'm finding that I want to spend more time in Valhalla's world than I've ever done in an AC game. When I played AZ1 and I was, got to the very end of the game and I was like, right, I'll go back and I'll do a completionist run, AC2 came out. So I was like, well, there's no point, I'll just go play AC2. And that trend followed until Origins, where I played a lot of Origins and then Odyssey came out. And I was kind of like, well, I'm going to stick with Origins because the world's so big that I want to find more stuff so i probably delayed playing obviously two weeks after it was launched so i can finish origins and now with valhalla having year two content i feel like i want to play valhalla more than any of assassin's creed because i know that and this will tie on our last point with the next game not coming for another two three years maybe more i feel like i want to spend more time in this world exploring every detail and find stuff i've missed so it is kind of a hard one to find a medium with the industry changing and I think if Assassin's Creed keeps making don't go bigger than Valhalla is what I'm actually going to say but a Valhalla sized world with a lot of content and a good life service and I know life service isn't always good but a good life service route then I just think it's going to be kind of good idea just to keep doing it so there's more to do in the time frame instead of rushing to the next one give us more free content to keep enjoying the game we're playing which ties into the dreaded ac infinity oh boy the bane of all existence no just kidding okay <laughs> i have thoughts on this and i'll <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to play it relatively positive um mm. so yep. i'm curious what you guys think about this so Ubisoft creating what is effectively an evergreen title or a title that um, it's released once and then updated many times over the course of several years. Um, the opportunity there is that you focus on making new content and features without adjusting the core message of what the game is. Like uh, Minecraft, obviously I'm familiar with it because I work on it. Um, it's effectively the same game it was 10 years ago, despite the fact that it has loads of new features and content because we're releasing stuff all the time. Assassin's Creed has released, I think it's 12 now, main titles over the course of the past decade and a half, which means the likelihood of changing the core message goes up because you have entirely new people that are homing the games, which means they'll have different takes on what the priorities should be and what's worth maintaining versus scrapping. Um, and you're also, you're not restricted 
to doing the same thing over and over again. From a developer perspective, I can see how that would actually be a good thing. Like you don't like to your point earlier about how we wouldn't necessarily ship a game like Assassin's Creed 2 or Assassin's Creed 1 today because we've had all these different technical and um, creative innovations that we wouldn't necessarily want to do it in the exact same way and just change the setting. You would want to do things a little bit differently. You would want to learn from the past with what went well and what didn't go well, like the retrospectives, and you want to build on that. So, you know, maybe players loved something, but developers hated it. Or maybe a feature was really bug-prone in one game, and then devs discovered a way to refine it, and so there, then it was worth reintroducing into a new title. So evolving is mostly a pro, but the cons can be losing that fundamental meaning of becoming too reliant on data points and trends from other franchises that might not mix well with the current franchise. Um, like the Odyssey being an RPG was a huge risk for Ubisoft. It was a calculated but huge risk, which largely paid off, fortunately. But I'm guessing their design and leadership teams had to discuss what the sweet spot was between keeping up with the industry at large and then maintaining the soul of what actually makes Assassin's Creed true to Assassin's Creed. Um, you know, with, with the single title receiving updates, like what we're going to have with Infinity, they're forced to kind of maintain the message of what the game is and then trying to accomplish. Like every DLC and every update will have to have something to do with that core title or something to do with those different settings involved. Um, Valhalla's raid update, like that, that stayed true to the core of the game of Eivor being a Viking that lays siege to England. Um, with the games as a service title, it kind of it sets that true north for where the content has to go because since it's within that one conducive title it's going to be difficult to justify going outside of those bounds um i do have hesitations about it though like i'm not full on like yes this sounds great i'm definitely a little bit concerned because they have such an established flow over the past nearly 15 years with their single installments and through each of those new installments they do have an arguably consistent true north where protagonists in different regions and time periods are thrust into a long-standing war between assassins and templars who have special abilities granted or I guess stolen even from the ones who came before. And for the most part, that process has worked. You know, people like us are continuing to be passionate about the series. Valhalla sold millions of copies and pre-orders alone. So the interest is clearly there. Um, it's just, you know, for all the changes they've made over the course of the series, changing what feels like the actual DNA of the game by making it a games as a service does feel like a huge risk. And then on top of that, um, you know, I would be remiss to say that there were hesitations regarding some of the allegations within the studio as well that create a barrier of trust that could additionally impact how we feel about the about the title and how we trust um, what the development will look like in the following years when they start to share more. My thoughts on it before I let iCrick talk, sorry. Um, I am very hesitant as well as a longtime player and I'm very hesitant about the team as well, just reading on the articles about beef between the two studios and who's leading it but reading one of the old articles from and this is a slight spoiler they mentioned um multiple dimensions or multiple worlds using the world tree from valhalla and it got me thinking as what james pointed out earlier it'd be a great idea to have um, the world tree as a, our hub as what it's been described as and every new game new dlc added is a new version of Assassin's Creed. So one update could be a slightly um, like Rafa Druid style map, which is a bit open world, where one update could be a very tight condensed city, but all of them will con have a singular thread that connects it to a larger modern day. So I am hesitant how it's been paid off and I'm very hesitant with the development team themselves. 
because I think it's been hyped way too early. I don't think it should have been hyped this early. But I do believe that if you have a hub-based game based off the world tree with a singular narrative that's thread through every update, every game to make a huge story for modern day, it could work because it could give us some bigger open-world RPG maps, but then it could give us as one-to-one scale type cities, as you see in Unity. So uh, development-wise, I f- could see it being a good thing. Um, sorry, I think I interrupted you, I crack. I'll give the chance to Memo. Memo has been raising her hand. Um, so, Just a quick point, because I have been talking a lot. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, if, to that topic of you know adding DLC content to different maps, um, a game you might want to look into for research or play purposes, because it actually is pretty fun, um, is Hitman, the Hitman series, the Hitman 3 especially, which came out last year. Um, because the way they've kind of treated that is they do have distinct maps for different missions, and they're not open world maps. They're they're pretty condensed maps, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, um, with a lot of really condensed details and things you can do in them. And the way they've kind of treated that series and that franchise is they'll release regular updates, either through DLC or just through content, through services, um, to basically add new stuff to those maps. So it'll change things out completely. Like there was one DLC where you got to wear like a golden mask and do kind of like a masquerade kind of situation. So it had custom items and custom uh, checkpoints, custom things for you to do, but on the exact same map, just with some different flavor and flair to it. Um, And that added a level of engagement to say, yes, it is worth coming back and checking out this game months after it's already been released because we've had this new stuff that actually feels fun and feels engaging, feels purposeful. Um, so as far as just that kind of idea of having different kind of DLC maps to certain maps that you can kind of expand on, um, check out Hitman and see what you think about the way that they have that designed. I feel like I'm getting a big list of games here. Hitman yeah. and Mass oh, Effect Legendary Edition. My Steam library is getting bigger by the minute. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's fair because we're all gamers at heart. So, right. So talking about this, I we may have to dissect down from what, um, Ubisoft have put up on the article, right? So um, I'm not a huge fan of the live service. I am a fan of Hitman's uh, service, pro- like what they have done so far. The reason why I'm not happy is that the last few games did not show a good track record of what direction it was going through. Um, and that is obviously with the squabble between Montreal and Quebec in terms of creative directions and stuff. Um, I will link the article to uh, our co-hosts and our speakers here. Um, it's not an article, it's like a tweet. Um, but it refers to an article where, um, like, mainly it's because you see the two different ideologies that are going head to head. And imagine that this is going to be a collaborative effort, right? So this live um, content, this live uh service as such is going to be conflicted with many many people out there and if they don't have a true path forward this will affect in a huge way so on on one of the images uh, it is given in um is by jonathan so uh jonathan is of course even though i don't want to say his name he is an abuser and uh I do condemn his actions, but unfortunately he is leading up in the Assassin's Creed uh, Infinity title as of now. And we hope that uh, Ubisoft will take appropriate action regarding this. But yeah, so according to him, he was more like 
uh, on the lines where the fans that have been dedicated towards in this community for like 13 years, need, they need to evolve from it. And I understand why he wants to say that, but the thing is already that that change in growth that he brought in was too drastic. And that also caused like a huge rift that is affected by a community to this date. And uh, with Valhalla, it tried to patch up a lot of what has been done. And seeing that Quebec is again taking back the uh, the control again makes me kind of a bit worried whether it will happen again altogether. So, yeah, that sort of that sort of uh, skepticism is affected for me um, as a gamer and as a player who have played all the Assassin's Creed titles so far. Next thing is what uh, Memo has said before. Um, you need to have a very good strong base. And so far, Assassin's Creed has been dumbing down the base so much, like most of the core elements that made Assassin's Creed Assassin's Creed is not there anymore. For example, parkour has been dumbed down to uh, a, a simple go up and go down. Um, you see that with many, many other features too. With combat, even though it has been changed so much, that was a huge uplift. Um with the economy being different, um, there there's not much of a, a central hub system like in the previous games. So with that being in into account, does this, does Assassin's Creed have the potential to have that base root game solidified? I don't think so. So this will be like a huge risk for Assassin's Creed moving forward, and I hope that. They, and mainly because it's a narrative game. It's a single-player narrative-driven game. And providing out a live service sort of thing is kind of a bit skeptical because it has not been tested before. Hitman had three games to test it out. They had a huge, amazing cycle for it. And I hope that Assassin's Creed would experiment this first before doing it out. I do agree, and I know Jason Stryer has mentioned that single player isn't going anywhere, so I'm trying to see it as more of Valhalla-esque world where the DLCs all added or something to do with new maps or something. I know they keep referring to a hub world, but only time would tell, and as I've said from the get-go, it's a project that's a long way off. They don't know what they're doing with it. Development's up in the air. I just think you guys have kind of released the hype too early, in my opinion. Um, James, do you have any last thoughts before we wrap up? I was just thinking that potentially they had to um, release that statement. I know that um, Jason Schreier, he published his article, I forget what time of day it was, I think it was the morning European time. Um, and he very quickly followed up with because then Ubisoft published their press release um, but he did very quickly follow up with a tweet that said actually I've been speaking to Ubisoft for a week on this and um, they haven't released this this press release just because I've published so clearly I mean my assumption is he had his sources and he said I've got this story I'm going to run with it but I'll give you a few days or a, a week to either to work with me to clarify things or you know to, to put your own statement out because I'm assuming he was going to run his story anyway um, but what I, what I was what I was thinking is about the hub world and about how Assassin's Creed is framed. And in theory, <laughs> not not to, to lesser or greater extents, it's framed by the modern day conflict 
and the different types of animuses, animi, that people are entering, uh, the different characters that you're exploring, whether you're playing as Desmond or whether you're exploring um, Abstergo Entertainment um, or whether you're Layla Hassan, who started as a, a member of Abstergo and then joined um, the Assassins. And I think if the hub is the modern day, then that's interesting because you can keep the modern day consistent and you can have a story that gradually moves forward year by year. Um, but if that's ignored or if that's minimised, then it, and it just becomes a historical exploration device. Think of the Helix um, screen in uh, Unity, then I, I would be concerned. Um, I think the other thing we need to just... Um, we're not going to get any news unless Jason or others publish it as, as members of the press. Um, but the other thing is this is a huge organisational change. Um, of course, they're two parts of the same parent company, but they've probably got their own reporting structures. They may have their own cultures. It Craig's comments earlier, of course, are important. There are some some people there who uh, have been reported to have very unpleasant behaviour. Um, and merging those two cultures, those two organisations will take time. Um, it, could, it can take a year for a, a corporate reel to settle down and for staff to understand where they fit and what they're working on and start to work efficiently. Um, so I think we need to see how that um, corporate reorganisation settles. And we may never know because it's all internal, of course. Um, but if it works well, we may end up with a better game. You know, you look at Valhalla and <laughs> Valhalla had to draw in threads that were established in Origins and new threads that were established in Odyssey and find a way of sort of neatly wrapping up the bow. Um, and I think they did really well. But, you know, they, they had some fairly disparate stories they had to bring together. And I think you have to respect how they how they managed to bring them together. But maybe the positive from this announcement, and I appreciate it's perhaps the wrong person in charge, and some people will say it's the wrong studio in charge, but perhaps this will give us the consistency that fans have wanted, where there is a steady narrative, a narrative that builds and makes sense, rather than a narrative that branches off or ignores parts of what's gone before. So I'm I, I'm not, although I, I I mean I didn't buy any of the micro transactions in Valhalla. I didn't need to, and I wasn't interested in it. So I, I kind of ignored the the micro transaction rage that some players expressed. Um, so I still have concerns about that side of it, but. If, it, if, it, if we get a, uh, an end result that is a consistent set of stories, um, then I'm, I'm happy. On, on about consistency, all I really care about is no more goddamn time jumps. I loved one to three, followed a timeline. I just did not like that Layla Hassan has his about a year and a half missing of her life between Origins and Odyssey and then again between Odyssey and Valhalla there's still like a year and a half missing that we have no idea what she's been doing and I don't want that I want to know what's going on I want to know what happens month and a month um I Craig before we um wrap up yeah Speaking of monetization, that would be the biggest issue here because we see how predatory practices Ubisoft have been with microtransactions, especially with Valhalla, with the like if you buy like at least two or three full sets, like gear sets in Valhalla, it is more than the base game itself. And that's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, it is ridiculous. <laughs> it really is. Like 
in order to buy something in Valhalla, even with real money, it is ridiculously pricey. And imagine this being into a life service sort of thing. Would the players would have to pay to a ridiculous amount at the start, say, for example, say $100, and then later on they might have to pay another $100 just to access a small piece of content? That is something I'm really, really going to be worried about if they are planning to do for a live service. And um, thinking about it, I think they might also go through the Destiny approach uh, if they want to go for the multiplayer uh, with a single player touch. Is like you can have the multiplayer into it, but they'll still have a consistent plot moving on forward. Maybe that would be the approach if they want to go with multiplayer. And maybe that's why they're trying to go with live service. But let's see how it goes. On just the very last topic of monetization, monetization is something that always worries me. I'm a, I, I like to play the game and not have to worry that I'm going to shell out. But I will say I do understand everyone's concerns about the microtransactions in Valhalla having more than the base game. But I kind of feel that compared to Odyssey, Valhalla is not that bad. And the reason I'm saying that is I've been using the mental set of things for, all, for 100 hours now. It's I don't feel like I have to buy a new set. That I have to go make a new build of a new set and get some cash. Where in Odyssey, where a lot of the gears had um, stats that would affect your assassins, your stealth and everything, I feel like some sets you had to go buy to make your uh, gear work better. I think a friend of mine spent uh, some money on a new set because it increased his assassin damage, so it made him more of an assassin play style. But I do know in the free game there was a lot there was a lot of loot to the, to do that anyway, so there was a bit of a ba- more balance. But Devil's Advocate, I just think Valhalla's gear sets are more cosmetical than anything, and if you can play the entire game through without ever needing to buy a set, I don't think it's too much of a problem. It's more of a problem when you're being forced to buy them. But again, I could be wrong. Right with um. In terms of microtransaction, how it changed, we saw that trend from Unity actually um, with the monetization starting in forward. Uh, but it became more and more apparent when the studios started switching their strategies too. Like for example, you focus on Unity. Unity did not have XP boosters, but the first time to introduce an XP booster was in Syndicate. And it was like a permanent XP boost. Uh, but of course, without the XP boost, you can finish out most of the story missions and still be the, uh, reach the level max quite easily. Uh, with Origins, again, monetization didn't prove to be much of an issue. It was mainly cosmetic. But however, with Odyssey, we started to see that trend that you need to pay uh, to for the level gating. This is, again, with the level design and stuff the level gating issues that were moving forward. Um, then you have with Valhalla, Valhalla is again rechanging the trend back to cosmetic, which does tend to worry a bit because we saw that with the recent earning calls with Ubisoft, they are making a lot of money through microtransactions. That would mean that they would give them a green light ahead for them to pre- to promote more predatory practices. For example, an XP unlocker of some sort i don't know like they could go they could do that and 
yeah, that could affect the entire experience and it would break the game entirely. And I wonder if they're going to continue with that same risk going forward. Yeah, at least from from my perspective, monetization isn't going anywhere. It's It's been proven that it's a valid and profitable business model for the industry and provides a stable income well after the launch of the title. Um, so the unfortunate reality is that's it's going to stay. It's just a matter of you know, how different studios and industries approach it. It's, it's absolutely critical to consider that business practice ethically. You know, you need to consider that whatever microtransactions you introduce are not something that is a requirement. Like it shouldn't block players from being able to complete and enjoy a game unless they pay additional money. That should never, ever, ever happen. And it should also never create a pipeline where that profit is prioritized over the core gameplay, over the core game. Um, but yeah, I mean, with even with all of this considered, I'm cautiously optimistic. I feel like I have to be <laughs> because I'm so invested in this franchise that I can't just let it go. Um, but I mean, I kind of to your earlier point, James, about creating ambitious titles that get trimmed down. I think every AAA title has several features that are that are lying on the cutting room floor. Every game has introduced something that developers realized couldn't couldn't ship. We couldn't use it. Um, every game has grandiose ideas during the initial design phase where nothing is off limits, but it's only when we're actively building those features and those tools that the reality of it is set, set in and realized, that the reality of how difficult it will be to implement becomes real. So Infinity, or Infinity, Infinity um, could give them an opportunity to use some of that cut content, to use some of those features that the developers have been wanting to utilize, and I hope they get the opportunity to do that. But I think it's perfectly valid for a lot of us to be hesitant based on some of the staffing concerns that I think a lot of us have and on microtransactions becoming a potentially toxic uh, environment um, that we just need to wait and hear more um, and not not go too deeply into um, gossip, I guess you could say, because they're so early on, so, so early on in the development cycle that it could go anywhere. I. I I'm always going to be the devil's advocate. As long as I can play a game and not bother about microtransactions, I don't mind that they're there. It's why in Valhalla I beat the game, done a, nearly beat the Wrath of Druids, and not spent a penny. So I know that they're there. I know there's too many of them. I know the prices are a bit over too much. But I'm not bothered because I'm not being forced to pay them. And let's all remember this started with... Oh, I'm going to butcher the name. Elder Scrolls Oblivion's $8 horse armor. This is where it all began. Back when $8 for some horse armor. But... Interesting. How how many years back are we talking there? I think Oblivion was 2005. Ah, right. Okay. Uh, does anyone else know? Because I actually don't know. <laughs> I thought, like, this whole monetization happened with the, um, well... More importantly, with the mobile games, actually. Um, yeah, they, I would agree that mobile games were a big, they, like, big they, part of it. Like, when I was looking through the statistics, if you check the number of games in the industry, 20% of it is in mobile games, but the revenue share, the majority of it is still in mobile games. Like, that's in, like, that's like just on microtransaction, the mobile sh industry share revenue is so higher than normal PC and console gaming. Which is insane. I, I do agree. I do think mobiles probably kicked it off because I did read an article months ago about um, game developers versus what they dub as whales, you know, how they make a free-to-play game, and they find out that some people play with a wallet. So they kind of say, well, I'm making a free game. It's cost me a grand to design. 
and I can get a hundred people to pay me a tenner, so I'm gonna make money back. But you then have a knock-on effect, sadly. And I just did a bit of googling. Yeah, Bev Seder did add two pound fifty horse armor that had zero effect on the horses to Elder Scrolls Oblivion, and that was released in uh, when was it released? Two thousand and six. So really cheesy horse armor in two thousand and six for two pound fifty. <laughs> Yeah, that must have been really costly at that, that time. <laughs> so, not gonna lie. So, yeah, it might seem cheap now, but maybe back. A lot of money in, in them days, £2.50. Yeah. Cool. Like, <laughs> not, like, like, even $60 now is still costly to pay for a game. And when, they, when the PlayStation's like, hey, we're going to bump them up to $70, they'll be like, ah! Right. All right. Do you know Ooh. what you've just you've what you've said there, Craig? Sorry, yeah, I didn't put my hand up before I spoke, but you've you've reminded me. I know, I'm sorry. You reminded me of a question that I was going to ask. I've been meaning to ask this for weeks in the community. So, if Valhalla was released as say a sixty, well, it was released as a. What was the base version costing? Fifty dollars, sixty dollars. I'm not sure. Let's I say sixty dollars. I'm pretty sure it was sixty. Yeah. Yeah. I think I bought the gold edition i can't I got actually out. remember that's, that's just me but still yeah i'm not sure why i brought it anyway if they released let's say the next one is called i don't know assassin's creed rome or whatever let's say we finally get a game in in classical height of imperial rome whatever let's say the base game is 60 dollars, but there's like a a pro version because everything's pro nowadays that was a hundred dollars and it included all of the additional armors and boosters and everything else. Would you pay that as a one-off kind of just give me everything? Give me the whole lot of what you're gonna create for this game and I'm just gonna go and play it. I mean it depends. Uh, like for example, Mass Effect is hundred dollars, not gonna lie. The our legendary edition yeah. is kind of a bit costly. But that involves all the DLCs, all the packs that was released all together as a bundle during the time. And um it depends on what what the value is at the time if the game for me when i played it did not feel too good um then i wouldn't take it i wouldn't pay an additional hundred dollars um but if it's like a trilogy say for example like if it's origins valhalla odyssey and then with all the dlcs all of them combined then i would pay i would pay the full price yeah, yeah. I, I i wouldn't I I don't know. I'm just one of these people that really doesn't care for boosters or um or outfits. It's not boosters. Because... It's, it's like like because some outfits, for example, in especially with Odyssey and Valhalla, the in-game items are not as good as the ones on the store. Like um, there'll be some items on store that are super overpowered that you wish you had in-game but are not there. Um, in Valhalla. You... I yeah. must be opposite because yes, there I would... there is oh. there in Valhalla too. Like for example, the Gothic set. If you have two of the Gothic set armor piece, you can regain health by just hitting your enemy. See, that's not I there in that's not there in your base game. And now you have a t you ha now they're releasing mm. in the recent patch. They're going to release an ability to passively increase your health, like regen your health. Uh, out of combat, which is basically what they did in the previous games. It doesn't make sense, but they're doing it. So, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to play an Assassin's Creed game and have a base game outfit that makes me OP. I want to feel like I'm yeah, making I'm not an impact that. on the I'm, game. Like, what I'm saying is that 
like there are like some things that you wish uh it became like a pay to win sort of situation right like for example mm-hmm. when the gothic set came out it generated so much heals and i was dying constantly for some random reason and all i had to do was just hit a bird to regain my health that's such a good thing so yeah i, 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 know, I didn't I like that i didn't like that pay to win feeling with the microtransactions so far if i had it in the base game that i earned it then i would be happy i'm just going yeah that implies a level of uh lack of balancing i guess we might call it like where game design yeah. is supposed to make it so that you don't feel like you're paying or grinding for a particular item and that it's something that you can do organically so that does strike me as something that's probably bad <laughs> because anything that you get um through microtransactions that feels ethical should largely just be cosmetic where it doesn't necessarily give you a particular advantage over something you could play organically um in my opinion at least but um but yeah i think actually i completely lost my train of thought sorry go ahead <laughs> I, i was just going to say i think really i would not use pay to win as a no it's because pay to win applies from what i've researched for 10 years now on free games and every game i play for multiplayer pay to win implies that you cannot progress without paying money so you cannot effectively do something without paying cash that's pay to win and i kind of feel like with valhalla i've looked at every mtx item out there and i've never said to myself meh i need that in the base game like i've died a lot but i just update my tactics i just play differently i've not really changed my outfit for over 100 hours so i think the abilities that are really powerful in the microtransaction store are more appealing to people who want to feel a certain way i never would i don't care about health regen or hitting an enemy for health regen that doesn't bother me and it hasn't affected my game so i wouldn't say it's pay to win if that makes sense I kind of remembered my thought. So, <laughs> answering the, the initial question of $70 games and increasing those prices. I have kind of conflicting emotions as as someone who's kind of uh, a developer in the quality space but also a consumer where on the former side, I do think there actually is value in increasing prices for games because the sheer cost it takes to make to make these games has gone up dramatically. Um, you know, it's when you have massively successful games like Grand Theft Auto 5 that continues to make ludicrous amounts of money despite the fact that it's been a bajillion years since it was released that's rare it doesn't usually happen where a game can make that much profit and sustain on it for a long period of time um a lot of games they run the risk of losing money every time they ship and it's kind of a miracle that every game gets shipped based on how messy development is but um but a lot of times in in the industry it's it's actually difficult to make that kind of profit and i think that's also partly what's been driven um to create more monetization because that creates that extra gap to create that money now if you create increase the price of the game to 70 or 80 dollars that doesn't mean microtransactions are going to go away unfortunately they're still probably going to exist in a lot of these titles but um it's actually kind of shocking that the price of games hasn't gone up over the past 20 30 years because production costs have gone up absolutely dramatically it costs insane amounts of money to ship these titles but on the flip side 
I think it's also really important to be conscientious of not blocking people out and not removing access to games. Like it's really important that we don't make it so that gaming becomes an elitist hobby. Like it doesn't become something that only the wealthy are able to, to participate in. That is absolutely something that we don't want to happen. The whole point of games is to be able to have fun and you don't want that to be a very limiting factor that people can't afford. Um, so I think it's going to be a, a, a fairly long back and forth process for the industry to figure out what the best way to approach that is, because, you know, it, it is a business. It does need to have income and profit that comes out of it, but it also needs to be something that's accessible and that's fun and engaging. And so it's going to be a pretty complex issue that needs to be solved over the next several years. Yeah, I do agree. The thing is, when I meant by pay to win, it's mainly the um the way that the games have given that placebo effect that you need that gear like for example the first thing that you launch valhalla right now is that you're not greeted with the main page you're greeted with the gear set um immediately you're not you're not shown the new dlc instead you're showing the gear set which is like a 30 percent off or 40 percent off so which is what it it sort of went to that mobile marketing strategy where it'll be like hey, you're low on energy, want to pay this $1 boost. So that sort of a thing is also be, is seen in Valhalla. And I don't, want, I don't want that to be happening in future games. And uh, I felt that heavily with uh, Unity, uh, not Unity, uh, in um, Odyssey, where there was a time where level scaling was going terribly bad. And I was tempted to go for the XP boosters and I did not, but it sort of felt like my time was not validated because I didn't have that XP boost that could give me that much EXP faster than those who paid for it. That makes sense. I think I kind of did care for, to get the XP boost and honestly after I beat the game, because I was just like, well, I beat the game. Let's see what this is all about. But, I didn't really feel any difference. Um, we are running out of time, but James, have you got anything to say? Um, I was going to, I'll make two very quick points because yes, I see the clock ticking and we have <laughs> been talking for a long time. So um, just on the, uh, the XP boosters, I, I feel I'm among friends and I can confess I did buy the XP booster for Odyssey, but I'll just quickly explain why, because I didn't really understand what I was doing. I didn't understand how the XP system and the leveling system worked. And when I realized that I was leveling up faster, but so were all of my enemies, I realized it was totally pointless. And I've never bought another <laughs> microtransaction since. The other point I'll very quickly make about um, microtransactions and, and so on, and just specifically focusing on Valhalla, I do wonder if the the constant release of new armors and mounts and other what are they settlement decorations i wonder if that annoyed players especially those that care because the actual game had so many issues at launch and those issues were not being fixed quickly you know there were players like jaw raptor himself he got stuck on a quest early on and couldn't progress his game um, and he had to wait several months for for the next title update um, just to, so that he could finish the story. And I do think there was a bit of a, um, maybe a bit of tone deafness between probably two different teams. One team working on, um, you know, uh, post-release um, bugs and another team working on cosmetics and business development. And it left a really poor taste in the mouth to see that 
those who wanted just to open their wallets could keep buying armor sets, but those that just wanted the game to work couldn't make progress. And perhaps had there been more focus on the on the quality of the game and the main story, then maybe um, the releases of new armor sets and gear sets might have been perhaps ignored, perhaps accepted. I think it's a hard one because I did see someone talking about this and they mentioned that it's um, the art team that does all the um, armor stuff. And I think it's kind of hard. You can't expect the art team to give you that bug fix. So the art team may just be told by the higher up, you make these new um, armor sets and you release them. They have no control over the bugs. They're just doing their job. And sadly, their job is really giving us Absolutely. cool looking armors. Yep. So yep. it's a double thing. It's <laughs> the game think, ninja yeah they need to communicate it better to the dev team yeah. uh to tell that hey there is an issue you need to fix it needs to happen now prioritize on that rather than releasing what i believe was like the 20th before the first title update they released like eight gear sets which is insane yeah. so yeah. uh the first update that before the release was eight gear sets and by the time the we didn't even finish the game by the time the new gear sets were out. And this went on for like what? Uh, I think now we got so many items on the store that is ridiculous. And the game is now in a worse shape than ever before. Like I enjoy playing the first time, but if I go back to it, I might cry myself. I might cry. Like I wouldn't replay That doesn't vote well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um. I, I will say that at least with with some of that, some items are date driven, which I personally I abhor doing date driven releases and date driven features, where whether for marketing purposes or for just general timeline purposes that the team has decided on for milestones and what have you, some components or features of work are like date driven in the sense that we have to ship on a certain date and at a certain cadence. Um, yeah, so at least yeah, as far as some of the cosmetic stuff goes, a, pro- a lot of it is probably related to that kind of work. And to James's point about how they're separate teams working on different things. Um, but I think a lot of people are very um, aware <laughs> and vocal about, um, you know, game-breaking bugs that can affect the experience. And some of those game-breaking bugs are very complex to fix and do need um, a big priority to fix them. But um I mean, the fact of the matter is game development is very complicated and very complex. And it gets, the, the bigger the games get, the more interactive they get. Certainly, if there's a multiplayer element, that that adds an exponential difficulty curve to it. Um, it just becomes very difficult to kind of tackle all of this stuff. And sometimes I think what might help the industry all up is being a little bit more transparent about that so that people realize, like, it's not that we're not working on fixing these bugs. Odds are, they are. But it just takes time and it takes... Um, you know, it takes an entire team of people to align on what those priorities are and how to make it all work together. Or we play um, some smaller games like Mass Effect. Advertising again, I'm out, I'm out. <laughs> I'm sold, um, I'm sold. <laughs> I I will stay mum on that because I could do an entire separate, like, day-long podcast about that. <laughs> um, as um, my partner uh, plays a lot of Sims 4 and I kind of used to dabble in it, they did mention that whenever there's a bug fix, it's not as easy as going in and patching it because games have domino effects. You could patch one bug, but you'll create six others. And that's just an unfortunate side of game development. You could 
find a workaround to quest A, but little do you realize you might have bugged quest B by accident. So, yes, that is absolutely true. It's technically what we call we call them integration bugs. So you can develop um, a feature and kind of have it in a private branch, so it's separate from the main game, and then just work on making sure that that code is clean. And then as soon as you merge that into the beast of everyone else's code, you get integration bugs. You get issues where the game crashes on launch because you didn't necessarily yes. anticipate how they would two different features would talk to each other, or um, you know, you, the code were perfectly fine in isolation, but then as soon as you applied it to some other feature that somebody just introduced, suddenly ev all the pixels turn green. Like there's random stuff that happens just because game development is so complicated that even if you're doing pull requests and peer reviews and things like that, you won't necessarily know they're a problem until they start talking to each other. And because of that level of complexity and because of how many features are actively running at the same time, that's one of the big reasons why I think it's really important that we take a lot of time with each games and a lot of care instead of just forcing them out the door every year or two, because all of those issues are only going to get more complex and more complicated. Um, I think we may have to wrap this up because it's nearly one hour. Boy, I'm going to feel so bad at editing this. I, need I was to about to say, something. you know, I just realized what we've set up for you for the edit. Uh, I feel really sorry. <laughs> I need coffee. I'm going to be living but off coffee and tea. Yeah, you're gonna. You need an IV drip of coffee at this point, <laughs> man. I'm sorry. But it's going to be an amazing conversation, though, because this is something that many of us would want to talk about, and I'm glad we were able to talk about it and provide it to the to the listeners who are Absolutely. listening to it. Yeah. Yeah. And let's just say, before we wrap up, James has to take credit for this. He is the one that told, told me about this idea, and the more I looked at it, the more I realized that game industry is one of the most complex things in history, and us as fans see bugs, see cosmetic updates see changes and we just think no the rune in the game or well, whatever but really behind the scenes it's the most complex thing in history that it's not as easy as we may imagine on the surface which is sure a sad that. reality but yeah. Yeah. this is generally what we all have time for an hour 44 audio streams to edit i need iv stat <laughs> Or just oh. Red Bull, or just Red Bull. Um, not one, not not one can. What I'm saying. Uh, you need a litter. <laughs> Imbibe be... safely. Whatever you do, end up using. Yeah. Just I'm be meant safe. to be on a diet. I should not be drinking tons of caffeine. I'm meant to be always drink away. responsibly. That's all I can say. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> I will have an army of tea beside me. So I am starting editing as soon as possible and then I'll cry myself to sleep when I break something. Or you could split your work, you know, like, you know, uh, take your time because I'm pretty sure the fans would appreciate it. So Make it a trilogy. Yep. Three episodes. Part one, part two, part three. <laughs> That's know? right. Yeah. Release it as an anthology. Yeah, brilliant. Don't tell yeah. me that. And then we'll Don't release it as me. a pro edition. Release it as a pro edition. There Perfect. you go. You subscribe to get the extra content. You see, it's a micro <laughs> Yeah, you can monetize and then we'll do yes. some random ad libs or commentary on top of our commentary. <laughs> so this one, like, after you listen to an hour 20, just static to, you want to listen to the last 30 minutes? Paying you 10 pounds. No. Yeah, that, that that sounds bad, but I, that I'm, pretty sure that, I'm pretty sure there'll be people who would do that. Well, I know what I'm getting into the business of, just releasing half podcasts, but the other half on Patreon and watch people come. I want to finish it. 
that, that's evil. I promise I won't do that, people. Yeah, but... he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Do you, do you see how easily we slipped into the uh, the discussion about how we could monetize it? <laughs> yep. <laughs> see how easy it is. It's just ah, we, we fall into it's the very dark side alluring. already. Oh, yep. It's very yep. tempting. It is. I promise you, people, my show will never be monetized. As a person who is skint twenty four seven, I could not force people to monetize this show. It's not fair. Not yet, anyways. <laughs> I'm not that skint, so. I hope you all enjoyed this episode, and I know the biggest takeaway is the gaming industry is so complex, so ever-changing, that it's unpredictable and unfair to assume that something has to happen a certain way, because at the end of the day, something's going to come along and gaming developers are going to get interested. Let's all remember that the first game was Pong. We started with Pong, and now we have this huge game and as somebody in the sister server shared Lady Demetrius's bird apparently has more pixels than Resident Evil characters from PlayStation 1 so <laughs> the gaming industry has evolved drastically and it's ever-changing and I should not have slipped that in there but hey let's see let's run with it <laughs> it's perfectly valid I'm yeah. pro I'm pro I found it in the sisterhood server, and I was impressed that somebody figured out that her butt has more pixels than a Resident Evil character. That's oh, her insane. butt. I thought you said yes. bird. Now I haven't played the game, so I assumed there was a bird in there. Her butt. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> that would have been great for you to boot it up and be like, "Where's this bird that I yeah, keep hearing?" Yeah, where's this bird? I've been playing this for twenty hours. There's no bird. <laughs> People oh, would listen back to this and be like, "What's he researching?" Oh my word. Oh, trust me, uh, we gamers get weird facts every day. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the gaming industry. It's strange. Yep, so, that's our tagline. <laughs> thank you so for listening, and I will see you all next week. Yeah, thanks see for having soon. me. Thanks Bye. for having me.